summoned the Scream Writers Podcast, the premier podcast welcoming both veteran and up-and-coming horror screenwriters slay their craft. <laughs> and now your hosts, Ariel Relaford and Patrick Mediate. Welcome to another episode of the Scream Writers Podcast. I'm Patrick Mediate, and I am joined by the whimsical Ariel Relaford. Hey, Ariel. Wow, whimsical. Whimsical. Very, very fancy today. <laughs> I'm still pulling names out of the hat. I'm making the running list, making sure I don't repeat my terms of endearment for you, but that was just <laughs> what came to mind today. So I'm the like to... least whimsical person ever. You're pretty whimsical when you want to be. You're, you're a wannabe whimsical <laughs> person. You actually almost didn't make it today. Why don't you tell everybody what happened to you? It has to do with an arachnid, which I hate. Speak about like one of the scariest horror oh, movies boy. and things that scare me, arachnophobia, that movie. But you had a run-in with an arachnid. Yes, and still don't know where it is. Apparently, there is a very large two-inch like circular body spider in this room, and I'm not too happy about it. So... I was tempted to burn down the apartment as opposed to record with Patrick today, but I'm here, so I'm sticking it out. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely glad you lived through it. But, but I, I know that that spider is lurking, and it's going to like come and get you in the middle of the night. We were talking before this about the Snapple cap like the, when you, that you looked in. You ate like something like 10,000 <laughs> spiders a year or something. It's not that much. Oh, my God. Is it? <laughs> I think it's pretty hot. It is shockingly high, though, how many spiders people eat in their sleep on a yearly basis. But anyway, we're glad you made it today. Uh, we're glad Thank the spider you. didn't get you yet. Yeah. Um, yeah. So if I start screaming and everyone's deafened by listening to this, I sincerely apologize. Yeah. Keyword is yet. We're talking today about because our guest revolves around the topic of musicals and movie musicals. We're talking a little bit today about horror movie musicals, which is an extremely niche topic, but there are a few of them that exist, some famous ones. My favorite one is Sweeney Todd. I love the Tim Burton uh, Sweeney Todd. It's I guess you can call it a remake because Sweeney Todd was done with Angela Lansbury a few years ago. This is my Broadway and me coming out, but it was like a remake of Sweeney Todd with Johnny Depp. I love that film. I think the music is fantastic and the interpretations in it fantastic. Then there's Phantom of the Opera, which I worked on for five years of my life on Broadway, um, which also was so made cool. into a film, a, 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 an inferior movie musical film. I, I think the, the, the Broadway version is, is far superior to it. What else is out there, Ariel? What else do we have? Oh, goodness. Well, obviously the Rocky Horror Picture Show. You can't oh, duh. <laughs> forget that one. I'm a huge fan of Sweeney Todd and Phantom. I'll watch those back to back. Let's yeah. see. There's also Repo, the Genetic Opera. Has Paris Hilton in it? <laughs> mm, do we want to count that one? I think it's we should. It's pretty good. I like it. Is it? I love the theory. I tried that one. I watched like five minutes of Repo, and I was just eh, maybe there's maybe there's people who love it, but I did I did it didn't do it for me. That's fair. Have you seen Stage Fright? I have not seen Stage Fright. Mm. What is that about? It is about a summer theater camp, and there's a murderer that happens to be there. The woman who plays Carlotta plays a character in it. Okay, Minnie Driver in the movie yeah. movie Carlotta? Mm -hmm. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So naturally, I was like, I'm watching this for Minnie. <laughs> okay, all right. So I add like that, that to your list. Watch that. I'm adding it to my list. It's added. And The Devil's Carnival. The Devil's Carnival. What is that? It's Why do I talk with a British accent now? What I don't does know. that mean? I don't know where that just came from. The Devil's Carnival. What is this? It's about sort of a carnival. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. Obviously, a carnival with no way. freaks and music and drama. Oh, okay. I like it. No, I, I like carnival creepy carny movies. Like I liked Todd Browning's Freaks, which is a older oh. movie, but it's really creepy. It scared the crap out of me when I was a kid. And I do like carny type, <laughs> like Carnival of Souls. So I do like the, that kind of thing. Maybe I'll, I, would, I would like that. You haven't seen it, have you? Yes. You have seen it? Yeah. How is it? It's good. I like it. It's yeah. it's sort of got that repo vibe. The repo vibe. Mm -hmm. I, I think I enjoy you, it, but I understand why other people might not. But I think when you judge a movie musical, there are some criteria, right? There's not just the script. 
there's not just what it takes to put it on, but there's also the, what we call, what's the score, the music and lyrics, which is a whole different component. And I think you have to judge a movie musical by that as well, because it is essentially a musical at the end of the day. You know, that's what I love about Sweeney Todd. Like I said, I think the music is so great. And it's also incorporates that really dark nature to it. The lyrics are very, very dark. They're mm-hmm. very macabre. I, I don't know. Just Repo didn't do it for me. As, I didn't like hum a song after the movie was over. There wasn't that one or two songs that you could just listen to and download and just enjoy by themselves. You know, I think that's my litmus test of a good musical like Phantom of the Opera is you it has music that you can actually listen to that stand alone outside of the film. I don't know. My iTunes playlist has <laughs> repo the genetic repo rock opera. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Okay. I'll, I'm going to give it another shot. I'm going to give it another <laughs> shot just for you. I'll give it another shot. But yeah, I mean, a lot goes into it, right? You've, you've got to have like a true lyricist that creates this world, this musical world aside. And then they have to work together with the, the writer of the book, which is in the musicals, it's called the book. And, and, work in conjunction with the script writer to marry the two and make one cohesive, amazing movie musical, and then work with the director and the set design, and it all has to complement each other. So there's there's a lot more moving parts when you're making a horror movie musical. Oh, yeah. Would you ever write a, a horror movie musical? Like as a, as a something on spec, and you're just like, well, I'm going to, this year, my script is going to be a horror movie musical, and I'm going to find a lyricist, and I'm going to get it out there. Would you ever do that? I've never thought about it until now, and I I might. I actually might. It could set you apart from the crowd. I mean, it is a strategy. It's it's definitely different. You know, I, I don't know if if spec writers lead with movie musicals, horror movie musicals, but it could be niche enough to get attention. Yeah, and I feel like you can't go wrong with horror musicals, though. <laughs> no, you absolutely I can't go wrong. I love them all. I really do, and I have a. I have an ear for music and that kind of stuff, though. Ooh. Yeah. Some, we're learning something new about Ariel. She has an ear for music. That's mm-hmm. terrific. I, I'm musical as well. I do play an instrument. Do you, oh, cool. do you play an instrument? Piano. Guitar. Oh, oh okay. I also play saxophone, but that was like back in, back in my <laughs> geek days of high school. So we can start a band? <laughs> we can actually start a band, just the two of us. We'll have our own band over, over Zoom. Um, <laughs> if you were to make a horror movie into a horror movie musical what horror movie would you pick this is such a great question oh my god i need a minute to think about this hold on right because it's it's not easy to think about about like a horror movie that would lend itself to being a musical it's interesting because there's also horror movies that have made been made into broadway and off-broadway musicals i know that evil dead was made into a musical off-broadway and it was very actually quite successful yeah I wanted to see it. There have been also horror movies that have been going the other way around into the theatrical world, which is pretty interesting. Now that I pose the question, I, I, I'm giving a sucky answer because I don't even know. I'm thinking myself what I would make into. I have to think about that. But I definitely want to pose the question to, to our audience and especially on social media. I just want to ask them too to, to see if they can come up with some cool horror movies that they would make into a musical or add music to. Yeah, I want to know the answers. The first thing that pops into my mind is Resident Evil. I don't know why. Okay. That could be a disaster or it could be just phenomenal. <laughs> I mean, it certainly has the name to go along with it. I was thinking more. It's not a horror movie, but I think something along the lines of Natural Born Killers would be like a good musical because you've got the love story, but it's a twisted love story. So I think you should have a certain formula if it's going to be a musical, right? You've got to have some sort of a love interest or a love story in there to, to add emotion, emotional resonance to it. Every musical I know has some sort of a romance, like yeah, a romantic right. element. So I think there should be a romantic element in the horror movie inherently that will you can draw from to create the, the music. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think that's what I, we got to think of is like, what's the what harm movies have like ro- a romantic element to them? And again, Natural Born Killers is not a, a horror movie or maybe it is a little bit of a horror movie, but it's but it definitely has that cool love story, that twisted love story between two crazy psychopaths. You know, it does. Could you imagine like a hereditary <laughs> musical? Oh, my God. 
or anything or anything Ari Aster. Like any Ari Aster oh, no. musical would just I, I don't know. I don't know if I could sit through a off of his you know. first his first film, a musical <laughs> no, based I off can't. of that. <laughs> I don't think so. I really don't. I'm I mean, I'm thinking more of along the lines of I think I would pick maybe a Silence of the Lambs because that's kind of a cool. Ooh. It's not a love story, right? But you've got you've got Clarice and you've got Hannibal, and it's not a love interest, but they kind of have to work together and play off each other. Maybe he has a little. I always got that Hannibal had a little bit of a vibe towards Clarice, like he kind of liked her a little bit. So there's got they've got that that anchor for the the movie musical, and then it kind of goes off on her hunt. It could be interesting. That really could be. You right? want to give it a shot writing it? Uh, we'll, we're going to, at least we'll pitch it. At least, at least we'll give it a shot writing three sentences and we'll, we'll go straight to, uh, to Bloomhouse and, and we'll see what we can do. Oh my goodness. Can you imagine? Today's guest, <laughs> speaking of <laughs> horror movie musicals, did write, this is actually much more than just a horror movie musical. This has horror elements, musical elements, and surprisingly also holiday elements which is like the trifecta of what we're going for this month in our horror holiday season. So why don't you, Ariel, introduce today's amazing guest? I would be honored to. Our guest today is Alan McDonald, who is the co-screenwriter of Anna and the Apocalypse, which is an amazing horror comedy musical streaming on Amazon, Hulu, Netflix, and Sky Now TV. If you haven't seen it yet, give it a watch. He has graduated from the University of Glasgow. He lived in South Korea, and he was a high school teacher teaching English for a while. And he still happens to mentor people who are, you know, writing and trying to break into the industry. But he has done amazing things. He was selected for the BBC Drama Writers Program 2019 and paired with Bad Wolf, with whom he developed an original drama series. And he was a script consultant and recently worked on a thriller feature for sony which is amazing and he's currently working on a horror feature for gold circle films who made pitch perfect and altitude which is a young adult tv drama for the u.s market with you know studios and without further ado alan mcdonald hello alan hi alan Uh, lovely to speak to you both naturally we started this podcast episode chatting about horror musicals and the likes most of them are absolute (laughs) hits including anna and the apocalypse obviously what made you and Ryan McHenry decide to write a horror Christmas zombie musical? Oh, um, so it's, it's, it was a bit of a journey. So the, um, the idea for uh, the film came from Ryan and it originally. So I, I don't know how many people know uh, about the origin of the movie. But um, Ryan McHenry was a, a Scottish filmmaker um, who uh, was most famous prior to the kind of involvement with Anna for being the guy who came up with the Ryan Gosling would eat his cereal vines back when vine was a thing uh, before anyone had heard the phrase TikTok. Um, and uh, <laughs> those are the best. Those are the best. Really, the vines. really, really pushing for some boomer credentials here. Mm. But, uh, <laughs> it's become retro. Now it's retro. <laughs> so retro now, which is depressing. But um, but Ryan was a was a um, a student filmmaker at the time. And he was a massive fan of Sam Raimi and Edgar Wright uh, and of kind of horror uh, and, and genre movies in general. And he was watching High School Musical with his girlfriend one day and just got a bit kind of pissy. Like, he just got kind of angry and, uh, and, and got a bit bored and said, God, I really wish a bunch of zombies would come in and liven this up. <laughs> um, and I think the idea kind of stuck with him because when he got to the end of his, I, I think it was his second year at film school, everyone else was making, um, you know, your standard kind of film student uh, projects. So it's just lots of really depressing uh, short films about abuse and uh, drugs and um, uh, existential crises. Uh, and Ryan uh, basically just decided he wanted to try to do something a bit more ambitious and fun. And he went to he went to a friend of his, a guy called Nason Alaikaru, who he had met in his hometown of Dumfries, which is on the border between Scotland and England, and had said, do you want to produce a zombie musical? And Nason said, no, that sounds like an absolutely terrible idea. Why would anyone do that? Uh, but as friends, um, decided to support him. And they, they, they got a bunch of their friends in, all of whom were interested in film in various capacities, you know, make props and to, you know, to costume it and to wrangle extras, wrangle money, wrangle catering, just do everything they had to do to get it done. And they made a short movie called Zombie Musical. Um, and they ended up showing it at the Dumfries Film Festival. And at that point, uh, I smaller kind of indie Scottish uh, film company 
were attending basically, I think, just as a small indie Scottish film company, just to kind of see what else was out there. And they approached these student filmmakers after the fact and said, we would like, like to make this a feature. And those student filmmakers all thought they'd made it. You know, they were all, I think, between, I guess they all would have been very early 20s at the time. Um, at that exact point, I had been spending a few years, I was a, I was a teacher of English and drama um, at high school level, and I'd been spending a few years trying to break into screenwriting, um, self-taught, just kind of off my own back and mostly studying Buffy the Vampire Slayer uh, screenplays. And I'd met a friend at kind of a rookie screenwriter's night uh, who had become a script reader for this, this indie Scottish production company. And, and the stars just sort of aligned. There's a very sliding doors version of this where none of this happens. But um, my friend said to the, the company, look, I know you guys are developing a feature here. Um, a buddy of mine is kind of an up and coming co-writer of mine. He loves Buffy. He loves Glee. He's a high school drama teacher. You should ask him to have a look at this and just tell him, you know, tell you what you think. And I took a little look at the short and I took a look at Ryan's initial kind of attempt at, you know, the kind of feature script, which was kind of 60 pages of a very director's take on what the story would be. And I gave him a bunch of notes and just said, look, you know, I'm nobody, but if I were doing this, here's some things I would change. I think your idea is amazing. Um, here are things that my student, here are the ways that my students speak, you know, that aren't represented in the script. Here are some things you might want to think about in terms of how the, the musical genre would approach this. And I was asked to be co-writer and that was back in 2010. And then Ryan and I spent a good couple of years developing the script. And it was one boxing day, which I know is a phrase that doesn't always travel, but it's the day after Christmas when Ryan called me and said, I think this should be a Christmas movie because uh, it had originally been a summer graduation flick um, and kind of pitched his uh, version of it. Die Hard is Ryan's favorite movie. And he pitched his version of how, you know, this movie we're doing could really be about renewal and, you know, celebration and about family and all these things we're doing already, we could set it at Christmas. And then it kind of settled into, you know, from there. So it was a long journey getting to that point. Um, sadly, a couple of years later, Ryan developed osteosarcoma, which is a form of bone cancer. Um, and we lost him in 2015, um, aged, aged only 27. Uh, so oh, basically man. that long journey um, from having met Ryan in 2010 to becoming co-writers and friends, um, you know, this, this idea of his that he always thought would make an amazing flick, uh, he, he wasn't around to see it through. Um, and we all kind of got together afterwards deciding what to do, but Nason had taken Ryan aside and said, look, what do you want us to do about, about this movie? Uh, and Ryan had said, if you get a chance, you've got to do it. Um, and shortly after that, uh, through a bunch of various business um, deals, but basically the small student film company merged with a video game studio and a post-production house to create a company called Blazing Griffin, who are now active in Scotland and do all three things. Um, and this became Blazing Griffin's debut feature. So I was kept on as what became solo writer. And at that point I had to look at all the things that Ryan and I decided to do together, you know, this, this, this strange zombie Christmas musical and try to make it my own as well as, you know, um, respect what Ryan had always wanted to do alongside me. And it became a movie about grief as well. You know, it became a movie about friendship and it, came, it became a movie about how things come along in your life that you don't expect. And, you know, God, it's, it's so funny watching people on Twitter saying, I know the apocalypse hits really different in 2020. Um, but, the, you know, <laughs> it sure does, honestly, right? for us, it hit really different in 2015. You know, it hit really different when we made it in 2017. And it was that sense of there was a person who should have been there who wasn't. And the the story very much came became about what happens when something blindsides you at a really important part of your life. And you're trying to decide what you want your life to be and what you thought your life would be and those 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 things that you thought your youth represented that would eventually become your life, you know, they can be taken away. And and, and all of that ended up being part of the story. Thankfully, John McPhail, who ended up directing the movie, really understood that and when he came along offered a whole bunch of his own insights and his own take on the characters and, and the feel for it. So, you know, when you ask what, what should have been a really simple introductory question, and I apologize for my massive tangent, but what should have been, you know, how do you come up with a movie this, you know, this kind of um, unusual? It's over a number of years with a bunch of different influences and with a bunch of different kind of life experiences all coming in at the same time. And I think for all of its, you know, the, the fact that it is a, a small movie that we made for not a great deal of money. I think the reason that it travels so well and it connects with so many people is because there is a lot of heart and there's a lot of uh, real life kind of grief and hope and joy all at the center of the movie. 
Yeah. What what is a such a crushing blow to 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 a friendship to your friendship with Ryan and and I'm so sorry that that had that happened. I mean, it's it's one of those things that with the creative process where where that happens, but in this case, it's something where you really rose above that and rose to the occasion to to really bring this project um, to fruition and and really shine through and and overcome that darkness with something really light. And it definitely shows in the film. To your point about the heart, especially the moment at the end with the father, with the the, the daughter-father relationship, there's no other zombie movie that I've ever seen in my entire life where I actually felt affected. You made the audience understand and feel for these characters that, okay, you're bitten now, but you know what that means? It means I will never see you again. Something yeah. as simple yeah. as the bite, right? And the way it's portrayed and the way it's written in the dialogue where they, where she has to confront this realization that just something as so simple as the bite of the zombie is just now I have to actually say goodbye to my father yeah. F- yeah, yeah, yeah. and see him for the last time as I ever. I mean, not even as I remember him, but ever. And, and you're faced with that moment. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's funny because you can have very different conversations about Anna and the Apocalypse. I think you know you you can talk about the music, which people you pretty much universally adore, and uh, you know Roddy Hart and Tommy uh, Riley are geniuses. The way they were able to both tell the story and just produce a series of bop um, is so impressive. Uh, and you can talk about the comedy in the movie. Um, uh, one one of the things that I find most rewarding as a straight white man working in the industry is how often uh, the movie is um, cited and, and welcomed by the um, LGBTQ plus community for for representation in ways that on. Honestly, at the time when I was kind of really fighting over that script, I was worried we're baseline. You know, it's just kind of like, well, we're really trying our best here. But, you know, I, I, I guess it's a sad indictment of where we are today that a movie which very fundamentally turns away from the barrier gaze trope is really um, praised for that when actually, you know, it, it, the barrier gaze trope should basically be the Bechdel test at this point. It should be, well, surely your movie just does that anyway. Um, but, you know, all these different conversations of the film all come from different places, but where we are right now talking about Ryan and talking about that moment at the end of the film, in lots of ways, it's quite a sad film for us because of what it represents in life. But what I think it's also worth mentioning that, you know, Nason was Ryan's friend longer than I was. Nick Crum, who's the other producer, knew Ryan longer than I did. Um, uh, Catherine Kennedy, who was the second assistant director, Ryan Clackery, who was the uh, production designer. They were all Ryan's friends from way back and they were on the movie right to the end. So all of those people, you know, so heavily involved with the production of it knew Ryan even longer than I did. And that line at the end, you know, uh, you know that, that moment of saying goodbye to Tony with Anna at the end. It's interesting thinking about that in the moment because Ryan and I talked a lot about who would live and who would die. And there were versions of the script where John lived, but we always swore he would never get together with Anna because that's not what the movie's about. There were versions where Tony lived because there was a slight concern. Is this just a bit bleak and everyone, you know, all the people that maybe she loves dies. There was a, there was a version where Lisa lived, but what I, you know, eventually I and Nason and our script editor, Gillian Christie came down on in the end was it's actually really important that Anna comes out the other side of this having experienced loss because we have all experienced loss. You can't get away from it. And what's important is what she takes from that. And that day when Ryan called me and said, we should make this a Christmas movie. There was a, the first draft of that movie just before Savage gets hit with the star. Anna had a very action movie quippy line where she said, Merry Christmas, you C word. Uh, and I always, that always <laughs> made me chuckle. I always really liked that line because it was really funny. But when it came to writing the version later on, and we were talking a lot about, um, if I get another very quick tangent, and please cut me off if I talk too much because I have a habit of going off on long monologues. But the very first version of the script that I wrote after after Ryan passed, um, the production team have since called the dark script. And they had to kind of sit me down and say, we can see you're processing a lot of stuff here, but this is not the movie that you were going to make. Actually, there's a lot of darkness here. There's a lot of sadness here. We really want you to get back to the movie you and Ryan were making and try to find your way there by yourself if you can. And I really struggled with it. And it was Gillian who pointed out to me, you know, you've got that scene with Snow Angels that was in the old script that kind of disappeared in this version. And I always really loved that scene and Nason loved it as well. And when I went back and looked at it, I realized that was the scene that Ryan and I had rewritten 20, 30 times together to try to get right. But ultimately in a scene full of fights and songs and heartbreak and battles, it's a scene of two friends making Snow Angels in a play park. And actually that's the center of the movie. So when I came back to write the end of that film, Merry Christmas, you see where it disappeared. And it was exactly what you just touched upon there, Patrick. It was 
Anna knows that she's saying goodbye to her dad. This is a quintessential coming of age moment. So of course the line is, Merry Christmas, Dad. Merry Christmas, Anna. And um, I think for me, that kind of sums up why I'm proud of the film. And, and I think that's the reason it connects with some people because in the midst of all the madness and in the midst of all that grief at the end, it's a movie in which a daughter says Merry Christmas to her dad for the last time. It's so true. It's so true. And you found mm-hmm. you found in that struggle with the rewrites and, and facing the darkness again, going back to that in the dark script, you found the perfect balance with the final the final cut. Uh, in my opinion, you found the perfect balance between comedy, heart, horror, uh, suspense and all that excellently. Uh, that's oh, well, just, just that's, in my opinion. Thank you. That's incredibly kind. Um, the um, Obviously, you know, what's on screen is what is in the shooting script, but, you know, I'd be absolutely remiss not to mention, again, John McPhail and how much of his own touches upon the visuals of the movie and the character dynamics and the amazing cast. God, they were all so good. They are all so good and remain so good. Uh, and also our editor, uh, Mark Hermida, who slaved with John for months and months with Nason and Nick and uh, Charlotte Walsh, her head of post. You know, it really does, it really does take, I was gonna say a village, it doesn't take a village or a town, it takes a, it takes a country to make a movie in lots of ways. And their touches are all over there as well. But if we weren't all in the same page about how we wanted to make a movie that fundamentally had hope at its heart, despite everything. I'm not not sure all that would come across because everyone needs to be pulling in the same direction. And as you say, it's a movie with lots of very different tones and a very kind of diverse set of circumstances. And um, even structurally, it's a slightly odd movie in the way that we uh, place a lot of the songs. And, you know, there are long stretches in that movie without songs, but when the songs really hit, you know, they have a story to tell. Um, But I do think that, it was so lovely to work as part of a team. Mark, I mentioned the editor. I met him on in pre-production on set. And the first the first thing he did when he walked up to me was gave me a massive hug and said, I love the script. And having an editor walk up and say that to you, you really feel like you're, you're a member of a team who are all pulling for the same thing. And you, you aren't just different departments who are all just going to make do with whatever they've got. Um, and, you know, the post department were just as important as the crew, you know, uh, on the shoot and just as important as, you know, the, the small group of us in pre-production actually, you know, and, and in development, making the script that everyone wanted to make a film that was about hope and heart and love. Um, and I'm so pleased that that comes across. Yeah, it certainly does. And and you touched on a perfect point there. You have to work as a team. I've worked on so many film sets as a producer myself. And, mm. and you know, that feeling of, of when you finish a film, you were part of something. You it was, it was It's almost like when you, that feeling where you go to summer camp for the summer and then you spend all this time with everyone and then it's done and then you're, it's, it's yeah. over, right? Or you join the circus and the, <laughs> the circus ends um, and all of those people that you've collaborated with over that time, it ends uh, like a film. And, and then maybe you meet again down the road with each other and you work and collaborate on other things, hopefully, but maybe you don't, but you have that moment in time where, um, where you did and it, and it feels great. Well, you know, on, on that note, what's really lovely, uh, our wrap party, it was a hotel in Glasgow. We hired out a big space. We all got together. It was really, like the crew got really tight together. And what was really lovely is it was a predominantly, Sc- in fact, almost completely Scottish crew. Um, all of whom had worked on a, va- you know, a whole variety of films and TV, but uh, very often what Scottish crews have found is they have to go down to London in order to work on bigger productions. And a lot of them, particularly in kind of costume and makeup, were saying how, how much fun it was to work on a big genre film like this in Scotland. At the rap party, the last song that was played before we had to kind of close down and move on was Hollywood Ending, uh, which mm. we put on just as a kind mm. of like a... Which is a, the a best kind of, song a, in my like, mind. It's the best song. I mean, it's, it's, You're wrong, it's the most, in my mind, fine. it was, well, well, I may be wrong, but, it, but, but in my mind, the most, I, I thought it was the catchiest song, the one that I hummed yes. after it was, it was over. I mean, I, and I, it stuck with me. It's, yeah. there's always one song in a musical, right? That sticks with you. And for me, that was the song that stuck with me. Uh, I, like, I'm just messing with you, man. Everyone, yeah. everyone has a very different take. It always really Of course, amazing. always. Uh, for me, it's human voice, but that's, okay. uh, you know, and some people I know agree with me and other people think I'm completely insane. And of course it's Soldier at War. But in terms of Hollywood ending, yeah, it's the one that I think, it's the pop song, it's the single, right? It, it's the one that everyone kind of associates. And what I, I know that Roddy and Tommy were really touched by this. And I think it really sums up the feeling on set and, and the crew and cast. When that song played last at the rap party, literally everyone went up on the dance floor and started to sing it. And every member of the crew knew the words. Uh, and it was just wow. that thing of, you know, we had, we had, we had, you know, older, older, older men, gaffers who had been on, you know, 30 years experience doing all sorts of other stuff behind them. And they knew this song. Uh, wow. And I think, you know, just in terms of like the way that the crew really 
really came to love this 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 weird zombie musical thing that they, you know they were doing for just four and a half weeks. Um, again, I think is, is is testament to what you're talking about about what a, what a group effort it, it is to to get something like this off the ground. That's the real litmus test. When the gaffers start singing the songs and know the words, you know you've done your job right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but talking about collaborations and, and a team, this is a perfect segue into this. I mean, I worked on Broadway for over 15 years, and, and I think I think it's important that you explain to our audience, uh, there's a book, right? And then there's the lyrics mm-hmm. and music. So just explain to our listeners the difference between the two and, and how you collaborated on both pieces to come together to make that that musical collaboration um, for the film and also a little bit about the difference between doing a musical for stage right maybe there is no difference and, and doing a movie musical and what goes into the movie musical component so that's really interesting because I am at this very moment working on a stage musical but I can't talk ah. about it which is a shame uh, but what's interesting is I'm writing the book for the stage musical and uh, in doing that it's it's I'm, I'm kind of doing that the way that is expected in terms that, you know, we as a as a kind of a development team with the dramaturg and with the other members uh, of the group, we we almost broke it down into a uh, basically a treatment. And then I went off and wrote the book and I've been talking to the musicians and stuff since, but we're now going to workshop it, which, of course, you don't do in film. Uh, and when we were making this, it's also important to remember we were all newbies. You know, we this, this was uh, for the development team. This was our first movie. As a result, we were kind of making things up as we went along. Bearing in mind, this movie started development in 2010 and was shot in 2017. That's a long time when most of us were doing other jobs. You know, I was a teacher for five years of that. Um, and you're finding time when you can, you're, you're getting together when you can, and you're doing a lot of it in whatever way kind of works. So for us, the early development was purely developing it as a movie script. For the first three years of the movie's existence, every time a song came up, I would have, I and Ryan at the time would have written a little description of roughly how we saw the song. So like, for instance, Hollywood ending, I think in the end became, um, it's summer nights by way of Taylor Swift. Um, which <laughs> actually, terrific. I think when you listen to the song, you go, yeah, I mean, I, I can see that. Um, now that you said it, now that you say, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's kind of, you know, and all the songs were, were roughly described in that way. And then quite literally it was maybe three pages of screenplay with just the word song written over and over in the, sta- <laughs> in the stage directions, just so we had a sense of page count. And right. for a good three years, that's what the script looked like. And we just developed the story, but there was always a sense that it's weird, right? Because when you're developing a screenplay, you're in control of the character arcs, you're in control of the structure, you're in control of the pacing. You're thinking very specifically about where plot and theme and character all interact. And you're trying to make sure the whole thing feels like a piece. When you're writing a musical and you don't have the songs, <laughs> you're, you're kind of, well, okay, I can design the story and the character arcs, and I know what the journey of this is going to be. I also know that by the time we get to these three, the end of these three pages, this character's arc will have advanced, except I didn't write a single line of dialogue and just very few lines of action, because the song is going to do a lot of the heavy carrying uh, here. So that was a really weird experience until we got composers, and we went through several groups. So there were, I think, two different songs in the Hollywood ending spot in the movie before Roddy and Tommy came on board and wrote Hollywood Ending. So again, you're working with different versions of songs. Earlier ones were a lot folkier, um, not through any particular kind of artistic vision, but more just the people we were working with at the time. These are the kind of things that were coming out. And there were still long conversations about what we wanted to do. And then when Roddy and Tommy came on, they, I think, I could be wrong, but I think Hollywood Ending and Breakaway were the first demos that they produced. And that's when Nason and I because this was this was Ryan was still around at the time. I think Nathan Ryan went, oh yes, that this this is what this movie is. And then obviously we had all the issues. You know, Ryan's illness took place over roughly two years or so. So it was a long journey where we weren't doing a ton of development on the film. And then afterwards, when we lost Ryan and we all got back together, and John came on board, then the real collaboration began in terms of turning it into a piece. Um, so John was already storyboarding and working with me and Gillian on script notes. And he was also talking to Roddy and Tommy about his idea for the visuals for the songs. And then Roddy, Tommy, John and I would get together in Roddy's place where there was a piano and they would start playing bits. So like I have a really vivid memory of the day that we talked about the lyrics of Hollywood ending. And Roddy and Tommy had written the line that John sings. um, I'm starting to realize sometimes the nice, nice guys don't always get the girl. And 
it was like, that's great. I really like that. And I said, can I just say though, at this point, it's really important then if we're going to do this, that in the next verse, Anna says something that bounces off that. Because I know that everyone in this room agrees that we are not making a film about how nice guys, you know, deserve sexual attention from women. But with a line like that, you're really, you have to be really careful. So, you know, when Anna in the next verse sings about, um, you know, I'm not a princess, sat in a white dress, hoping my chance will come. That was very specifically engineered between us all in the room to react to John's previous line. And that's how a lot of the development of the songs went. Roddy and Tommy would go off and write lyrics and melodies. We would listen to the demos. Very often I would have a draft of the script going and when they delivered a new demo, I would go back into that part of the script and rewrite that particular sequence using the new demo. And then I would get back to them and say, okay, this really works, but when this character sings X, actually what we are seeing on screen won't match that. So I can rewrite it around it, but what if Y character sang it instead and we changed the line to something like this? And then it became a really organic conversation. And then of course, John would come in as well and say, well, actually during this sequence, I'm thinking we're going to have people on the tables. So if they're going to be on the tables and I'm going to have them singing with a kind of a backing chorus, it's a bit weird if they sing that. So it, you know, it, it really became a kind of a four-way conversation with the producers also chipping in every so often with thoughts and it was a very organic process. So in a way we sort of workshopped it between us, but we never did that with actors in the way that we are going to be doing with this, um, you know, with the stage musical and theatre now. We're going to have actors, we're going to have the production team. We're really going to workshop scenes and songs together and it will be um, that whole process in a much more organic um, manner. Whereas with the movie, it felt very much like we had really intense two-hour conversations and then we all went off and did our own bits and then got back together. Um, and then by the time we got to pre-production, we had um, finalised masters of all the songs and we had a almost locked shoot, shooting script, which I, I don't have to tell either of you, completely, of course, changed in pre-production when a location fell through and we had to lose five pages. But um, you have a sense of, of what the project is going to be come that point. But I think it was in the final year of the seven that it really felt like a proper collaboration where we were going to and fro. And um, the other story, I guess I would tell where something different happened was the song I just mentioned, Human Voice which was never written for the movie. It was a demo that Roddy and Tommy had put together to just demo some new recording equipment that they'd got that they were going to use on uh, the film Masters. And they'd written this pop song, which they were, I can't say who, but they were currently courting a, not, you know, not a tier, but like a, a well-known pop stars team. Um, they'd, they'd been courting with the song Human Voice at the time. And Nason had sent me the demo alongside new demos for Breakaway and for, I think, Soldier at War. And I listened to Human Voice. And at that point in the script, the bowling alley sequence during the bombing was described as, I think, something like Little Drummer Boy, uh, but the David Bowie version. And it was kind of like, it's military, it's scary, it's about the kids at their worst moment, worried that, you know, the whole world is falling around them, but it's got this real military kind of marching vibe to it. And then I listened to Human Voice. And the first thing I did was send a message to Nason saying, we need to keep this song. And then I rewrote the entire bowling alley sequence to focus it towards the notion of them feeling disconnected from the world and the fact that they couldn't get anyone on their phones and the fact that all they wanted to do was hear the voices of the people that they couldn't get in contact with right now. And suddenly the song felt like it had been there the whole time. And when I rewrote the sequence and sent it to the music guys, they came back and said, oh, yeah, this fits. Perfect. OK, well, OK, let's do this now. Let's talk about how we develop the song. But the song was, you know, I, I just think that's a really interesting kind of indication of how uh, movies change and development changes over time. And you can have a single idea, and I'm sure we've all experienced this, where you've finished the script and think, brilliant, it's done. And then you have an idea which affects something at the end and realize you have to completely write, rewrite the entire script again. It's like, actually, this beat that I've got at the end is so much better than what uh, I thought I was aiming towards, but now everything else has to change. And with a musical, um, I found that happened a lot with the songs as well. And Human Voice was the prime example. And that's now my favorite sequence of the movie. I love the way John shot it. I love the performances. I love the backing vocals. I love the way the entire movie hinges on this notion that it's kind of knock around and fun and a bit Shaun of the Dead. And then bombs start dropping and phones stop working. And suddenly this movie gets kind of dark. And that all came from a song which was never meant to be in the film. It's important to understand that the beauty of the final cut of a film and the final product is in the journey. Once the screenplay is done and you decided you want to make the film, 
it's it's in the beauty of of finding these little happy accidents or or maybe a location doesn't work or maybe this yeah. doesn't work out or it doesn't fit right in the puzzle but being adaptive to that and being malleable to the fact that look we're going to see where this takes us and it's all going to be for the the betterment of the end game of the project yeah yeah completely um and i think for for me uh, a big shift happened in my screenwriting career and i just think in my general happiness with the job when i came to appreciate the new ideas that bring everything kind of jengaing down to the ground rather than just feeling tired at the notion of having to rewrite again but i think you have to have gone through the process enough that you have learned the lesson that it's always better afterwards and then you stop seeing the effort and start getting excited about what the end product could be because it is a lot of effort and and the, you know, the hours and pages that go into anything, even reaching um, a financier's eyes, never mind getting onto a set, just hundreds of hours. But the, for, for me, that learning that lesson that, um, you know, just because you feel something is finished, what that actually means is you're one exciting idea away from a much better version that's going to involve a whole lot more work and getting energized by that. Um, as opposed to feeling uh, disillusioned is, is a big, big step. Because again, I think as we all know, um, screenwriting is a job full of disappointment and rejection. <laughs> so uh, when, sure whenever is. you can become excited about a change as opposed to just feeling tired, um, you know, that, that just gives you the impetus to move forward and produce something much, much better. Absolutely. And and how did you get into screenwriting? How did you get into specifically horror? I mean, this, I guess we can consider Anna and the Apocalypse, the hybrid horror musical comedy, but is, is horror a genre that you want to stay in? Is it a genre that you love? Um, talk to us a little bit about yeah. how you got started. It's a strange one. Um, John, during the press tour for Anna, um, John used to always say that uh, there was a reason he and I were teamed up on this because I was the one who brought the Buffy and the Glee and he was the one who brought the John Carpenter. Uh, <laughs> Great analogy. It's actually very, very true in lots of ways. Um, so I like horror and I'm terrible at watching it. Like I, I just find it so intense and I, I struggle to watch without, co- like literally without covering my eyes. I'm a massive wuss. Um, I, you and Ariel have it, something in common. Oh my God. She's, it's she's so terrified of, of our film. I find it a lot easier to watch at home than I do in the cinema. I, I find that because of the size of the screen and you're surrounded by other people having reactions. So for the same reason that watching a really good comedy or watching a really uh, energized, like that moment at the end of Avengers Endgame where all the portals open that will be memed forever that made me want to cry in the cinema because I could feel everyone's goosebumps rising. That same effect during a horror movie is torturous for me because I know that everyone is about to scream. Um, So I find that really hard. That said, horror, which also um, intersects with other genres, is very much my thing. So like uh, Alien and Aliens are two of my absolute favorite movies of all time. And the, the horror aspects of those terrified me as a kid, but leave me relatively un, kind of unshaken now. I, I just really love them for what they are. And I think the, the notion of kind of the horror hybrid, again, loved Shaun of the Dead, despite the fact that there are moments in there that, that play as very straight horror. I, I guess other stuff recently, It Follows, I think is probably my favorite horror movie of the last few years, because it has, to me, to me It Follows has as much in common with The Terminator as it does with you know other kind of classic um, pot boiler or kind of slow burn uh, tense horror movies. I think I like my horror like I like my coffee. You know, I, I enjoy the flavor, but I like a little bit of something in there just to kind of just to kind of sweeten it a little for me. Yeah. Um, and I, that is very much where I'm at with horror. I'm writing another horror movie right now for um, a, a pretty major um, Hollywood player, which I, I appreciate is a really uh, <laughs> I appreciate it's a really self-indulgent uh, non-statement, but it's about as much as I can say. Uh, but it's a producer who's done a lot of horror and a lot of other movies as well. And he's very exacting about what he regards as kind of popcorn horror. And I'm loving it because he's a real expert on on that side of things. But I get to bring, uh, you know, for me, it's a movie that's also about communication and it's about tech and it's about the relationship between two sisters. And being able to bring that, for want of a better term, Anna side of me into a much more traditional horror movie, I'm finding wonderful because I get to write really tense sequences. I get to write really scary um, moments in imagery, but I also get to write those scenes 
of two people with a lot of baggage behind them finding a way through it in the midst of a really extreme situation, which I think is where horror excels. I, I don't buy into this elevated horror nonsense that people are throwing around just now. So it's like uh, it's like when authors who have predominantly written contemporary fiction start to talk about writing, um, you know, uh, oh no, I don't write science fiction. I write speculative fiction. It's like you're you're writing science fiction and uh, horror movies are horror movies. And this notion that somehow just because now people who consider themselves artists are doing horror, now it's elevated horror is silly. Um, you know, you can I think look it's at the Rosemary's phrase. Baby, you could look at it's, The Shining. It's absolutely the phrase. It's the and phrase. I, think- I mean, you, it's the it's the, when you put a brand, a name on it, right? It's not it. it there is mm-hmm. elevated horror. There are better, more elevated brands of horror that touch on other things like in, in, in an apocalypse, like it has heart. It has this. It's got other things. It's not just, you know, you go into the camp in the woods and you just get slaughtered one after one and there's kills and this and that. Right. There, There is horror in that sense of the word. That's that's a little more feels a little more premium. Right. Yeah, I guess. But then I also think you can say that about absolutely anything, can you? You know, I of course. Oh, absolutely. About comedy. Um, So I I, I think it's more just the fact that uh, people look at like Jordan Peele's amazing output in recent years and say, ah, look, horror has grown up. It's like, no, of course not. It's just Mm. Jordan Peele can do what he can do because he is an aficionado of the form. Like he understands horror. Um, and, And that's that's what's so wonderful about it. Um, so uh, in, in, in terms of the genre, I'm a bit of a convert. I think it's not that I, it's never that I disliked it. I actually always really enjoyed um, the notion of being scared. But for me, it always came with something else. One of my earliest memories, my dad was a massive fan. I don't know if you guys are aware of the Jeff Wayne, What are the World's Rock Opera? Uh, just kind of a big <laughs> thing. I'm, not, but, I'm not, but I'm oh, glad I do now. It up. Um, it's, it's genuinely wonderful. It's 70s as all hell. But um, it is, it's the story of the War of the Worlds, but told through music, as you would expect, uh, along with a narrator. Um, but it has this really incredible, synthy, creepy um, sound for the Martians when they land. And my dad used to play these vinyls when I was a kid because he loved them. And they terrified me because just the sound of these aliens was so scary. And for me, that's where kind of where horror intersects with other media or with other genres, I think I find most effective. Because if you just sit me down in front of a horror, I'm gonna really struggle to watch it because I'm just on edge all the way through. I have to this day never watched The Exorcist, and I don't think I ever will. <laughs> because I just I just don't think I can handle it. I think it's too much. Uh, I was but, raised but Catholic. I think that makes too much. <laughs> you're raised Catholic. Yeah. That makes but that makes your, your horror writing so much better because you know what's you know what scares you. So so it's yeah, time completely. to put it on the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And and you're always drawing from you know, the, the classic Joss Whedon quote about Buffy was, you know, it was a show about how high school is hell. And I don't know any anyone would ever say that Buffy is fundamentally a horror show. But I also think there are real moments in that show, uh, both in terms of relationships and also specific standalone episodes like Hush, say, where the monster is genuinely horrific. And you can tell that people are drawing upon things um, that they themselves find uh, terrifying. Uh, and that, that's when horror really connects. Oh, absolutely. And you've been extremely busy over the years writing for television, film and games. Do you have a favorite medium you enjoy writing for? The thing is, I mean, ultimately, I'm still very new. Um, You know, I I became a a professional screenwriter in 2015. So five years is enough time to kind of, I think, make your mark. But I would actually argue that last year specifically was the year that, for want of a better term, because it means nothing. But, you know, uh, by any other um, measure, I think that's the year I made it in terms of, you know, I was employed by multiple companies to do multiple different projects in different media. And it now feels like I've got a bit of a body of work going. I really like medium hopping, I have to say. Um, my heart, if I were pushed, lies in TV uh, because I've watched, I watched so much of it growing up. And to this day, I think a lot of my most formative storytelling, you know, I can always point to movies, uh, you know, Blade Runner is huge for me because I'm a straight white man who likes sci-fi. <laughs> Just standard, I think, across <laughs> across that demographic. Uh, you know, I love Blade Runner. Uh, it's in my soul. Uh, and I watched it for the first time on like a really crappy, tiny television at three in the morning in the UK when I was 14 over a summer holiday and it blew my mind in all the ways that cinema's meant to. But I think in terms of like the drip, drip, drip over time, um, it was Doctor Who. And later on, it was Buffy the Vampire Slayer and The West Wing and uh, Veronica Mars. Um 
you know, the uh, Battlestar Galactica, you know, The Wire. I, love, I could just keep going. Uh, Alias. But there's a very there's a very specific group of shows I think from kind of nine, the late nineties through to the mid noughties that are enormously formative. But I'm a big gamer as well, you know, and I can point to Final Fantasy VI on the SNES when again I think I was seventeen, and just the ensemble there. And the the reach of that steampunk steampunk world, and the way that I genuinely cared about these little pixel figures, um, but a lot of those stories, I think, in video games were coming out of Japan at the time. And again, you then start to look at anime, and you look at Akira, and uh, there's this big mix. What really excites me, I think, about writers uh, working across these industries at the moment is they are as likely to cite um, TV or video games or anime or comics as they are classic cinema in terms of their kind of really formative storytelling experiences. And I think we're starting to see a real uh, a, a real different kind of swathe of, of storytelling coming out alongside the long, long overdue push towards more inclusivity and diversity in, in voice. Um, and that's really interesting and exciting from storytelling. In terms of my day-to-day -day work, um, I love writing movies because I'm given a task I've written the treatment, they've okayed it, and now I just go off and write a script. And I love that. I get to sit down and I spend, you know, eight to 12 weeks uh, going from page one to page 100, 110, and I've written a story. And it feels contained and cinematic and broad, and that's great. Um, I love TV because I'm thinking about characters over long periods of time. And when you're designing a show and writing a pilot, which are incredibly hard, um, you're also thinking, okay, what I'm setting up right now in this very first scene with this character for the show that might never get made is something that might not pay off for three years. And that's so exciting because you can see the character, you know, development down the road. I love video game writing because it's so quick and immediate. And, um, you know, the, the creative director will give you a sense of what they need for the narrative of this game or this dialogue or this quest. And you go off and write a little, it's like short story story writing, you often write a little mini contained narrative and you give it back to them and you get one set of notes in my experience and then you rewrite it and then it goes in the game build. And it's there for now and you might come back to it later and on bigger AAA titles, which I've not had a chance to work on yet, I'm sure that's a much more complex process. But the turnover is so huge. And you know, a game script could be anywhere between 300 and 3000 pages. So much work needs to get done that it needs to be turned over quickly. So you're constantly coming up with new stories and vignettes and little character beats and moments. And they go in immediately. And it's not like developing for screen where it's entirely possible that four or five years in, you're rewriting a thing that you first got excited about all those years beforehand. Um, and working for stage right now, back when I was a teacher, um, I, I, I was the drama teacher who did, you know, who, who wrote and directed the skill shows. I, I, was, I was that stereotype. Uh, mm. So um, I always loved working with, uh, with actors. I always loved the idea of you have a stage and you have your imagination and you have blocking. Uh, later on, we'll get lighting. Later on, we'll get sound. But right now, there's just, you know, 10, 20, 50 of us in a room based upon a story that I put down on a page let's find the most exciting, interesting way to do it together. And let's take your ideas and try things out and change things and cut things as we go. Um, so I, I really like how uh, malleable I think um, theatre work is as you're working on it. Uh, and that certainly feels like the most collaborative of, of, of all those. Um, so I, I like hopping between. I, I, have, I have writer friends who absolutely cannot work in more, more than one thing at once because they just need that focus. But my brain works like... Um, when I plan stories, I plan them as jigsaws. And I, you know, I, when I have a premise for something, I already know what the final image is going to be. And I've got a really good sense of a thing a character does roughly page 40. And I'm jigsawing it in when I'm planning and then I'll write the script. So I think in terms of my career and different media, I enjoy hopping between them as well because they all have a slightly different feel and pace. Yeah, absolutely. And that was my actually my next question for you is like, take I guess we just take Anna and the, and the apocalypse as a um, as a little bit of a, a base for it. But how do you approach a screenplay? Do you just dive into it? How did you approach Anna and the apocalypse? The the idea marinated in your brain and then you kind of just jumped in. I mean, I know you worked in collaboration. So so was yeah. it a collaborative idea um, with Ryan? Did you outline it? Did you do the characters first? We, we, we did outline. I think I'm a lot more disciplined these days about what my outlines achieve than we did back then. But I also think over time, I, I think the other weird thing about being a screenwriter is you spend a huge amount of your time before, for want of a better term, going pro, 
learning the craft and practicing um, and you're probably doing, you know, I, I was attending seminars and reading all the books and, you know, really trying to get all the systems down, fell in love with Blake Snyder for a year, you know, all, all the stuff you would expect. But um, I think at those stages, you're kind of looking for the, um, the right way to do things. You know, you're looking for the secret sauce. And what I discovered over time is that you, you, you gain a lot through experience just by osmosis, by reading scripts and by writing scripts, but also especially, I think, by getting... Um, professional and experienced eyes on your scripts and getting that feedback. So eventually, even though I outline now, I feel like my outlines now are much better informed and move a lot more quickly than they would have done back when we started. So when we started Anna, it was very much, okay, let's choose a system. And I think it was Snyder. And it was very much like, okay, let's break this down. Each part of the story, what's going to happen? Let's think a little bit about bad guys close in, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then we worked up a, a beat sheet from there, if I remember right. We never did a treatment, uh, but we worked up a beat sheet from then. And then we moved to script because it was quite important at that point of the company we were working with that they had a script they could take out to market. And we just did draft after draft after draft on the script. Uh, and it was kind of a, a weird no man's land between pantsing and planning, I think. Uh, whereas these days, I think like a pantser, but I would not start a script without um, an outline. But my outlines these days tend to be bullet points. Um, I don't really follow a system. I don't card. Um, I will sit down quite literally with an A4 pad. I do my, I do my planning longhand. Um, and then I will just bullet point uh, because I've usually already got in my head what the premise is. I might have done some vague brainstorming around the characters and the themes and things like that. Uh, the setting, some interest, some fun ideas for what might happen. And then I'll just go beginning to end with bullet points. And they won't necessarily correspond to scenes, but they will correspond to the kind of wider beats of the story. Um, you know, character character wakes up at the bottom of a lake. Uh, character drags themselves to the shore. Character finds themselves to a diner. Uh, you know, uh, and, and from there, um, I'll find myself usually with a couple of pages of bullet points, which I will leave for a little while. And when I go back and look over it, if I still feel comfortable, that's usually when I start writing the scripts. And what I find is... 50% of the time, those bullet points were dead on and I will finish a first draft. And 50% of the time, I will hit a point around about a third of the way in and realize that I didn't have a story at all. I just had a series of cool ideas that don't make up a story. Uh, and then you need to kind of go back and really start outlining again or just decide that the idea isn't worth chasing. But what I definitely found is that everyone was right when they told me you have to plan stories. But I was also kind of 20% right when I told them but to really get the story solid in my head, I'm actually going to have to write it. And I generally find that my second drafts are a, an order of magnitude better than my first, because I need to write my first draft to really know what story I'm telling. And the purpose of an outline is not really to get the story right. The purpose of an outline is to allow me to comfortably write a first draft without hitting a brick wall. And then at the end of that first draft, I've got a much better idea of what the story is. And it's a good thing you didn't have to actually do any um, real life research for this and, and zombies aren't actually <laughs> running around the streets and you have to fight yeah. them off or you, or you do like reenactments. You know, this is this is completely in your imagination. And I think that's the beauty of it is it, it, the idea is completely up there. Well, the funny thing is, um, I would have agreed with you when I was writing, Anna, and now I think I disagree because I've discovered research as part of my professional life. You know, it's just a necessity. Um, I spent all of yesterday uh, researching Edgar Allan Poe and Boston in the year 1827 uh, for a project, which was, uh, Poe was one of my favorite writers at uni, but I hadn't gone back for a long time. And I'd forgotten as much as it feels a little bit like going to the gym in the sense of like, oh, I need to go do this thing in order to do this thing, I, you know, in order to actually get the result I want. Um, I'd forgotten how much research actually is just a massive story machine. And that when you start research and I realized, oh, I might, you know, well, that's interesting that Poe did that at that period of time. There might be a story in there somewhere. And then at the same time, I'm looking up Boston that year and oh my God, like there was a, there was a lighthouse that burned down a hundred years before. Like I couldn't have, I could just have created that, but that's perfect. I'll just use that. And mm. um, research is brilliant for that sort of thing. Uh, I would have said that I didn't research Anna, except of course I did. I was a high school teacher. And I look back at, I look back at the Anna script now. There are, there's a line of dialogue in Anna and the Apocalypse when Lisa turns around to Anna and having put her foot in it by saying, you know, she can't imagine what sort of person would have slept with Nick, immediately shouts, love me and hugs Anna. And I realized when we were on set that I completely nicked that line from a student that I taught six years before. Royalties. I know, I know. Right? <laughs> She's going to come back and say, you know uh, that line. No, thankfully, she did go see the movie and she did congratulate me on it afterwards. So I know I'm clear. 
but and it is just that line. But uh, you know, you you think of a little moments after the fact and realize actually that was totally inspired by a thing that happens during a drama class on a Wednesday. Um, it's not the same moment, but it's the same reaction that a character has to a similar, um, you know, a similar uh, piece of baiting from another from another character. Uh, so, so coming out the other end of that, it was very easy for me to say, oh, well, you know, I love Glee and I love Buffy, so of course I wrote the high school thing. But so many of my old students went to see the movie uh, and so many of them sent lovely messages afterwards. But what really struck me was how many of them said, so like you, you, you just wrote like Theatre Kid the movie based upon our school, didn't you? Uh, and it was like, ah, do you know, you've kind of got a point. Like, you know, these are not characters that translate one-to-one -to, -one to students I taught, but there are there are little beats from my teaching career all over that movie. So ultimately, um, I think your imagination is your voice and that's what you bring to scripts. And that's why people employ you as opposed to another writer. They want your imagination and they want the way that you look at the world. But I think it needs to be, now I say at age 40, uh, it's taken me this long to learn this, but I do think it needs to be coupled with, um, it needs to be coupled with things that other people will recognize from real life. And that, that's what I think makes them gravitate towards your voice and your perspective, because there are, there are truths in that, as much as I always hate that phrase, there are things that they recognize in that from their own lives that make them want to, um, make them want to kind of pull a story close and feel connected to it. And I think research is as much, here's a thing that really hurt me when I was 17, or here's why that last breakup that I had was so painful. Um, right, research is as much that as it is, you know, what part of town would you have stayed in in Boston in 1827 if you were poorer? Um, and it's all of those things together that I think make a movie feel real. Um, and your imagination is the, uh, is the exciting voice in which all that is dressed, I would argue. So we like to end our podcast episode by asking our guests the same question. We already kind of know the answer because you're like me, scared of literally everything. But I'm going to still <laughs> ask you, Alan, what scares you? Oh, wow. What scares me the most in life? Uncertainty. Uh, if my wife were here, she would, she would, she would cackle in the background. I think it's just the, the sheer truth of that. I really struggle, which means I'm in entirely the wrong career. Um, but no, what, what scares me the most in life is uncertainty. I think being able to look into the future and just not knowing how things are going to turn out. So obviously 2020 has been great for me. Uh, arguably the last five years, the last five years of Western politics has been great for me. Uh, but, but the, you know, I, I think what really terrifies me and it, what's interesting is it's found its way into my, um, non-horror scripts recently. Um, there's a, there's a TV drama I've been working on, which is about people in a really extreme kind of sci-fi situation, but it's just about, it's not about the sci-fi and it's not a hero's journey story. It's just about people suddenly realizing they don't have as much time as they thought they did and what do they do with all the baggage they've been carrying all these years um and it's been so funny looking at that through the prism of uh the last five years that our world has been going through and my complete inability to deal with uncertainty in the future um i'm the guy who likes to know what's happening next week you know i don't mind us saying on saturday we'll do something as long as i know there is a plan to do something on saturday um, and, and the notion of just staring ahead and saying, I've no idea how this is going to turn out. Uh, I've no idea if the script is going to work. I've no idea if uh, at the end of this, um, well, I'm on an American podcast, maybe I should be careful about my political <laughs> references. I've no idea at the end of well, this. Election, we do a lot of the editing. world is going to look, shall we say, uh, speaking as someone who was uh, up watching CNN along with everyone else, uh, you know, uh, in a very recent week. Um, so that, that that sense of uncertainty really terrifies me. And I think in some ways that might sound like a bit of a soft answer compared to say, you know, uh, ghosts or, you know, uh, heights or e extreme situations in which I might die. But I do think uh, what, what uncertainty um, I think really, uh, really links with with regards to the horror genre are those movies where nothing happens for a very long time but you know it's going to eventually. That slow burn tension absolutely ruins me uh, because in real life, nothing scares me more than being completely uncertain about how things are going to turn out. That's a fantastic answer. That's a perfect, <laughs> per absolutely perfect answer, like the other answers. Um, and yeah, and we're and we're so happy to have had you today on, oh, on the show. Thank you, thank um, you. It's really a real honor. And um, we hope to have you on again soon talking about this c top secret horror project <laughs> you've got going on with the top secret uh, oh, producer. Crossed. Yeah, um, 
our fingers and toes will be crossed for you. But um, one thing we can say is that you will absolutely, whatever it is, infuse heart and in, infuse your um, soul and, and your creativity into that. And for that, I'm very, very excited about it. Oh, well, listen, uh, Patrick and Ariel both, uh, thank you so much for A, talking to me, because it's always nice when anyone wants to talk to you, but uh, B, just uh, the, the, the kind of love for Anna and the Apocalypse will always touch the hearts of all of us who who made it. It was very much a, a massive kind of passion project. Um, and to, to think that anyone, let alone people at the other side of the world, took something from our strange little Scottish movie about what it's like when zombies invade at Christmas in the middle of nowhere, uh, it will never not be incredible to me. So thanks so much for um, just engaging with the film and giving it your time. Oh, well, thank you, Alan. <laughs> thank you for joining us for another holiday horror-filled episode of the Scream Writers Podcast. It was great having Alan McDonald on the show today. It was so cool. He was available to come on. Don't forget to visit our sponsor, 1428th Street. They're 1428ST on Facebook. Head over there. Uh, talk to Whitney. Tell her we're hooking you up with a great discount. If you use code SCREAMWRITER at checkout, you'll get 15% off your order. And it's a great gift for the holiday season. They have all sorts of cool horror artwork over there. And they'll do custom artwork for you on items that uh, you can just think up. And uh, if you can imagine it, they'll do horror art on it. So head over there, 1428ST on Facebook. Ariel, how can everybody find us on social? Well, if you're not subscribed on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you're missing out. So subscribe there. And you can follow us on Twitter at ScreamWritersPC, Instagram on ScreamWritersPodcast. And if you have any questions or want to be on the show, go to our website at ScreamWritersPodcast.com and fill out our contact form. Tune in next week for another incredible episode. And until then... Keep writing. And stay scared. <laughs> <laughs>